The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is Steve Pemberton, the CHRO of Work Human. Steve has an amazing life story. In fact, it's chronicled in both the book and autobiography. And the movie, A Chance in the World, reading and some key people in his life really elevated him out of some very difficult circumstances. In fact, he talks about on this podcast somebody that was a meaningful mentor to him later in life, and that was Kathleen Wilson-Thompson, the head of HR at Walgreens. In fact, Steve served as head of diversity and inclusion for Walgreens on her team. Steve really sees HR as the people who take care of people and work human, uses technology to enhance that and support performance management, providing the mechanism for moments that matter. Steve's a very inspiring leader and has incredible insights, which you'll enjoy. In fact, he really is focused on income inequality and things larger than just his organization and his immediate circle. In fact, he talks about his experience with human lighthouses and how we all have them. Up next, we have Danielle Stanton, the CHRO of SNHU. Good timing on that podcast, as that's one of the leading online educators. And now, our conversation with Steve Pemberton. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Ah, thanks for having me, David. We usually like to get a sense of our guests and what they care about and what's important to them. And there's a lot to know about you. I've read your book and, and watched the movie and just an amazing life with a lot of people early in your life that failed you. And how did you get your confidence to be a leader in business from there? In some ways, it was the same kind of mindset that I had in the middle of that circumstance growing up in foster care and largely being forgotten about. It's kind of a, it's a harsh thing to say, but the reality is that I'd been discarded. My reaction and my response to that was to fight with whatever was around me. But when you're a young boy, you're limited. Uh, so mm. my weapon was uh, reading, actually. I just enjoyed it the way that anybody would enjoy a hobby. All of a sudden, this idea that it, it could actually elevate me out of the circumstance became clearer to me as I continued to do well in school as a result. That kind of approach, what it allowed me to do is develop a vision of my own life, but then also any situation or circumstance. It also forced me to be solution-focused, uh, to think quickly. And this mindset that I can, what I don't know, I can learn provided that I am willing to do the preparation, willing to sacrifice. Uh, and then lastly, and probably no doubt the biggest effect that it all had was being in positive, affirming, empowering, inspiring environments and in those careers. So throughout my career, it's no accident that I've kind of always been focused in mission-centered industries. Mm. I was in higher education, I was in career advancement, in healthcare, and mm. now in recognition, empowering humanity. That is just very much a reflection of those early years, the absence of those things in mm. my life. But then later on, you know, the memory of them are still with you and how important uh, the work that we can do can fill the gaps in other people's lives, especially now, mm. especially now. So in some ways, the challenges that you had earlier were also, also the fuel in a way. Yes. Because oh, you knew what was needed. 
to keep making yourself better and making your mm. life better. Yeah, yeah uh, sometimes, you know, the pain of our past is uh, part of the happiness of, uh, of our present. Mm. Audrey Lord you know, made that point sometime ago, and it's true. Mm. And I've always thought that HR is a unique profession in that context because you s literally we sit right in the middle of humanity. You know, HR, we're the people who take care of people mm -hmm. uh, so they can do their best work. Right. That's great. Well, why don't we talk about your business? Let's talk about Work Human. What's the model? Now, you touched on it a little bit, but if you could tell us a little about how you work with organizations and what the mission is here yeah. at Work Human. Well, it, it's really predicated on this belief that the best of humanity comes from positive, empowering, inspiring environments that mm. are crowdsourced and, and peer driven. Uh, so much of the ways in which we are recognized in organizations. Uh, oftentimes will come from management. But whether you're working on a team or on a project that requires some degree of collaboration or support across functions, you really do begin to learn kind of who's doing the work and the impact that they're having. So what we do is in essence provide the mechanism and the platform to bring those moments that matter to people's lives on a daily basis hmm. that comes across with their peers and uh, of course is seen and approved by management who also receive recognition and deliver recognition. The net effect of that, the ability to transform culture kind of takes the words off the wall and puts them into behaviors and things that you can actually see. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a sense of what it looks like inside an organization? Is it a software and there must be some education about how to use this? Yeah, so it is literally just that it is a platform. Yeah. Um, that sits on your on your desktop on your mobile. And devices. everybody in a company has and everybody access. in the company has all levels, to, right? All levels doesn't matter who you are, right. uh, when you started, yeah. uh, how long you've been there. From the day that the platform's implemented, you have the ability to begin recognizing immediately. A lot of that has to do with our own internal implementation process. So we have a whole team that is dedicated to getting the platform created, established formalized and then communicated across the company. So our brand promise is that this platform and the way it's architected is going to allow you to shape, shift, and celebrate culture on a daily basis. Mm. That means it's all going to be focused on the adoption, the implementation side. And I think that's been one of the secrets to our success is that uh, we're going to be as passionate about the implementation process as we are about the sales process. Right, right. Yeah. And you said it really helps build culture as well. I imagine that it changes culture when you really Im implement some of these tools. It does. It, it does impact culture. It affirms culture. I was actually literally on our recognition platform uh, this morning. I, I was approving uh, recognition moments. I was delivering recognition moments on some very specific tasks and projects that were completed really well. So you're really, you're eating your own cooking. This is done uh, inside yeah, Work yes, Human yes, as yes. well as for your clients. I imagine as an HR leader, you have a very unique perspective because sure. you're also a user, a buyer, somebody that would buy these types of services. So I imagine you have influence in the customer side of this operation, the yeah, product development yeah. side. Is, is that true? Because we deliver to HR specifically through, you know, Comp and Ben functions. Right. So we, we can kind of be, a, you know, kind of a lab for mm. a product team. Hey, how would you respond to this? How would you think about that? 
So we get involved in a lot of those things early on. So you can test some things. That's Absolutely. Like, hey, this is. Yeah. I think this will resonate in the marketplace. Yeah. We love it. Yeah. Right. And exactly. you also can give some bad news and say, don't use this one. No, <laughs> don't, don't give do this it. to a no. client. <laughs> We've seen a lot of HR faux pas. Right? So you go. But if you, but if you really thought about that for a minute, and I, I've seen enough of those faux pas, and I say, what was the process, the decision-making process? Who was in that room? Who was around the table? That's yeah. like, okay, this is a good thing to do. Yeah. And sometimes it's the absence of those voices. You know, for us, it's not just recognition, though. We call it the work human cloud because there is an intersection of people processes that I think recognition is the foundation of. Mm. But recognition can also translate into performance management. I was going to ask that, yes. How do these tools interplay with performance management for your clients? So for us, it's conversations, actually, and that's literally what it's called, conversations, where you're having these, rather than the once a year or twice a year performance management right. discussions. Everybody's saying this just doesn't work. Uh, uh, yeah. right. Ratings once a year, Yeah, it just doesn't yeah. work. Yeah. One of the problems is that you can't react to things real time. So in, in a conversation, so let's go back to the project that you and I are working on, and let's say that um, you were late, or I was late, or you and I like mutually agreed, hey, we got to sit down, that didn't go as smoothly as we wanted it to. That's like literally a conversation that you and I can have. Mm-hmm. So I'm giving you feedback, you're giving me feedback, hey, where can I improve? Well, the next task or project, I'm going to remember, hey, you know, David really pushed me on this. I'm going to be attentive to that next time around. It's not just good news recognition. There's also, hey, I think we can do this better next time. Or Absolutely. As is service milestones, as are life events. So I can tell you that in our company, we had 41 babies who were born. 10 people were married across our, our workforce. Just in the last year? Just in the last year. Wow. Yeah. How so big is WorkHuman now? A little over 600. 600, okay. And it's Dublin and? Framingham. Have we always needed these kinds of support tools to share with each other and to be positive and to be more recognizing of each other's accomplishments? Yeah, Was I, it always that way or is it is it the sign of the times that we need to provide more of these kinds of I think it's forward? always necessary. Yeah. The goodness of humanity always wants to be affirmed. Mm. That is one of the elements of being a social being is, is affirmation. But there's something different in this time now. Mm. You know, the foundation of culture dissonance, cynicism, attacking, yeah. a certain degree of mean-spiritedness, disconnection, that oftentimes, regrettably so, is quite purposeful. Quite purposeful because there's some business models that are tied to it, there's political models that are tied to it. Mm-hmm. I'd argue when so many other structures are not necessarily living up to their mission, the workplace actually is becoming maybe the last best place for humanity hmm. to define itself because in the course of a working day, you're going to encounter people who are different than you, uh, who have different talents and skills than you do, and oftentimes you have to work with those individuals towards mm-hmm. a greater good. Right. You know, there's, there's something instructive uh, for the rest of us about that, so why not the workplace as opposed uh, to you know, trying to find it, you know, externally. You know, since you mentioned it, you were head of DNI before you became a CHRO. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what works well in the workplace with regard to creating a more diverse and inclusive workplace, and what doesn't? Yeah, yeah, I do think that um, this, as a evolution, has gone through different cycles, and I, I do think that we're at the end of the runway of of one particular cycle, which is necessary and important. 
that is always talked about the importance of diversity and uh, be part of the social fabric of the organization. But, you know, just some hard realities that uh, we have to face that um, is not going to be the most effective way for us moving forward. What do you um, mean? Well, I, I think, one, that you're still dealing with a lot of uh, tensions over the rapid acceleration of diversity, uh, both in society and in organizations. Uh, we still have, really, a dearth of leadership at senior levels. Yes as an example. Right. Um, the needle you know, is not moving no, nearly not. fast enough. Right. And we know that while we have been in that phase of diversity and inclusion, uh, we now know that uh, many women were experiencing the most monstrous and inhumane of behaviors in the workplace, the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. So what are the, some of the strategies, I think, that uh, can help us advance? One, just a philosophical shift. And it requires a kind of a dual perspective, you know, because on the one hand, so much money has been spent on unconscious bias training, but there's a harsh reality to face that a lot of what we're seeing today is not unconscious. This is conscious behavior. Right. Uh, it can be bad intent as well as unconscious bias. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. You know, those things that are unconscious should be our focus, of course. But we also got to sail very aggressively. And working, we're in a unique position to, to help address this. If the only time that we're talking about diversity and inclusion and belonging and whatever other evolution is in the context of adverse behavior, then you miss the greater connection points to everything else that different lenses and different experiences bring. The only time you're talking about the gender perspective in the workplace in the context of uh, sexual harassment, that's a real problem because it's not all that she is. There's a lot of other perspectives that come from experiencing the world differently as a woman, or a person of color, or someone with a disability, or the LGBTQ community. I mean, you just kind of go down the road and, and ask people to bring their whole selves to work, bring their experiences to work, because I think that has such a major impact on everything from product design to marketing campaigns mm -hmm. uh, to uh, this kind of greater awareness uh, of the thing that you should not say, of course. But what about the things that you should say? Right. Right, that are more empowering. There's a really tight connection, I think, between diversity and innovation. Right? So we have a Braille system, which comes because of Louis Braille. And I'm willing to bet that he doesn't create that if you weren't blind. Right. You know, there's, there's so many of these examples, and I think we've got to invert the numerator and denominator here right. and see diversity as a driver of, of innovation. I love it. Do you think the DNI title should be inside the, like, DNI should have a function in organizations going forward, or do you have a different perspective? Should it be everybody's responsibility, or do you think there, this is in large organizations, we should have somebody with the title of? head of diversity and inclusion? I think you have to, yeah, uh, because it can lead to a certain degree of self-determination mm -hmm. that can be viewed differently. Product, sales, legal, IT can mean all something different. Right. Um, but I do think that those roles have to have a very, very specific focus uh, on empowering, inspiring the functions to help deliver DNI. Because companies and organizations, if you really think about it, they're made up of small industries. Legal, sales, right, the products, functions, IT, right, T, HR. So let's look at this from a recruitment standpoint. HR for quite some time has been a fairly diverse field. 
uh, from CHROs, many who are women. Right. Um, so sometimes the only senior executive. Yes. Is a, that's a woman. Yes. Could be the absolutely. CHRO. Not uncommon. Yeah. Um, but sales, a little bit less so. Mm -hmm. um, IT, uh, African Americans or Latinos, less so. And that's as much a function of the pipeline. You know, as well. So you have to, in other words, you have to have different strategies. Some are kind of longer term, longer view, and then others should be more focused on both leadership advancement. Let's say, mm -hmm. um, as a strategic function, I think it needs kind of an owner and a driver. The decentralized model, rarely sustainable. Shift it back to HR here at Work Human. What's important to the people that work here about yeah. how they work together? I would say that we attract people who have a genuine passion and interest in furthering humanity towards a greater good. This is not a vinegar place. This is not a place where you know, currency is gained mm -hmm. uh, by attacking, criticizing. It's more on the other side of empowering, inspiring, mm -hmm. uh, helping people do their, their best work. And Which is consistent with what you bring to the marketplace anyway, yes, right? Yes. I would and hope it's here, right? That makes sense. Well, it better be. <laughs> it better be. Yeah. You really do have to live what it is that you're delivering. My team, the company started hearing me say it, but um, the bar is higher for us. Mm -hmm. It just is. Right. Because of who we are selling into, what mm -hmm. we deliver to the marketplace, are kind of what our, our brand promise actually is. Now, the ability of our platform internally, I can see. I can see who's getting recognized. I can see where the recognition moments are coming, who's delivering them, what teams, what functions, mm. and also who's not. Right. So it gives us this opportunity to address things real time. Yeah. As you go to that group and say, why aren't you using these tools? You know, why are you not providing the feedback and the coaching and the yes. recognition? The, so the impact that has on retention, for yeah. example, I think one of the areas that we've got to evolve is rather than this kind of a reactive model, vis-a-vis -vis exit interviews. It's too late. Too late, she's already <laughs> left. <laughs> Whatever you learn in terms of the reason that she left is not gonna help her, it might help the next person. Right. But what if you could address that as it's unfolding? What if you realize that there's somebody on your team who has not been recognized? Mm -hmm. uh, somebody who has not had an opportunity to uh, better themselves through a conversations moment? Yeah. I think this would be a good time to have the Nira Emerging HR Professionals question of the podcast. We do this every time, and I know you're a big supporter of NERA, too. Yep. We have Megan Mandino ask you this question. So you've written about the importance of the Upward Bound program and the mentors you found there. We were wondering if you've had any meaningful mentors throughout your HR career. I have. The, the most influential mentor that I had, and still have, is the uh, current global CHRO of uh, Walgreens, Kathleen Wilson-Thompson. Kathleen is leading HR for you know, one of the largest companies in the world. Uh, but her philosophy and approach was uh, and is actually, as, as she would often say, you run your own shop. Oh, she empowers time. people to run their, yeah. whatever they're responsible yeah. for. You got it. You got it. That kind of empowering element actually always made you uh, want to be a student of your craft. I think that that's very important to do, always learning, studying what are the innovative practices in HR, for example, uh, and then bring those findings, learnings, you know, to that leadership table. To me, the single greatest definition of a leader is whether or not 
the people who support that individual, do they go on, do their careers evolve and, and, and grow? And she continues in that vein. And she also would put you in situations that um, would give you that same opportunity as well. So uh, that to me was the single most important thing that she did. You know, mentoring isn't just about having a one-on-one conversation. The mentor kind of talks to you one-on-one in the room. The sponsor talks about you in a positive way when you're not in the room. Mm. So, hey, I think we should really have Megan join that team. Uh, Sponsors will stretch you. Is there somebody that you'd recommend that maybe a lot of people listening have not heard of that you look to in the HR community is somebody that's really doing some amazing things that's up and coming? Anybody, we should be watching. These, these people are doing some amazing things in the, in the function. You know, one of my uh, all-time uh, favorite people in the HR uh, space is um, Candy Castleberry Singleton, who uh, is at Twitter. Okay. Candy's always been focused on dignity and respect. And Same role, she heads up the function like you? Yes, yeah. yes. That I did at Walgreens, and she now is at, uh, at, at Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caroline Wanga at, uh, at Target is another who comes to mind. Tyrone Studemeyer at, at, at Hyatt. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the thought leaders. Uh, Brene Brown, for oh, example. Oh, sure, yes. Um, yeah. Tony Schwartz. Brene's focus on leadership. And the way that leaders show up is, is, I think, always an important message. And Tony's on that intersection of leading and living. Um, you know, how those two worlds intersect are equally important. Uh, Nissan, uh, which is... Yeah, you know, I haven't heard about them with yeah, regard to their yeah, HR they, practices. Yeah. They have a culture of continuous improvement. They call it Kaizen, which is a combination, really, of the British and the Japanese styles. Right. But it's all focused on continuous improvement. It's the foundation of the culture. We all have heard the stories of the companies who didn't shift in time. Mm-hmm. And they were strong, powerful, doing very, very well. But all of a sudden, they were no longer relevant. So what happened to them? The landscape underneath them shifted. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't shift with it. Right. Yeah. Steve, have you... Um had a long-held belief maybe since you've been in the HR world that you've changed your mind about? There was a time that I really uh, underestimated the importance of leadership. I thought, wrongly, that when you get to a certain point in your career managing teams, everybody understands what it means to lead. How don't you get that? Why wouldn't you understand? You mean if somebody reaches a level in their yeah, career? Oh, yeah, yeah, they've arrived. And boy, is that wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or was that wrong? It's almost entirely about leadership. And in fact, I'd argue that the more responsibilities you take on, the more visibility you have within the organization, whether it's in HR or any other function within the organization, the more humble you have to get. Mm-hmm. The more you have to create a culture of a leader, of collectivism. I ask my team all the time, what don't I know? What don't I see? I have a responsibility as a leader to create that conversation. Uh, what's giving you pause? I would much rather my team tell me or us within the company tell each other than the marketplace tell us. Right. Uh, but I think the leader has a responsibility to create that, create that culture as opposed to just kind of defaulting mm-hmm. uh, to, well, you must know uh, what you're doing because it says on the org chart that you're the head of the function. Right. 
you know, my feeling is that that's how the whales end up on the beach, you know, because they're following the fool up front who says, I know where I'm going. And, and you know that there's a couple of whales that are way in the back, and they're going, this isn't the right way. And we need them to speak up. Yeah. Leadership has to create that environment that pulls that information up. Right? Yes. What are we, that humility to say, I might yeah. not know everything. I might be going the yeah. wrong direction. You mentioned, you know, how important culture is not only inside organizations, but also the larger world. And... You've also shown some desire to take that into a political direction. Mm -hmm. I think you uh, ran for Senate, and I'm wondering if we might look for something like that from the future. Maybe ah. talk a little bit about your experience and yeah. what could we see from Steve Pemberton of the future? Well, there were some real drivers for me in, uh, in becoming a candidate for office. One, I think just generally, uh, we all in some way have to answer the call of country. Now, how you choose to do that is subject to one's individual choice. For me, it was running for office. Mm. But I had some other drivers, too. Uh, we are living in a time of you know, unprecedented income inequality. This is actually a third rendition of it. We saw it in the 1890s, saw it again in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. This is much worse. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the American and, you, and you, in your life story, you've lived yes, some of this difference yes. in inequality. Yeah, and... and um, the life expectancy in the United States, beginning in 2014, is declining. We are the only high-income nation in the world for whom life expectancy in an era of major advancements in medicine is going the other way. Crazy. You know, there's just this harsh reality to face of the avalanche effect of income inequality. When people are locked out and shut out of a system, uh, it is no accident that, as a result, it leads to desperation, self-destruction, and ultimately a certain kind of disintegration of, of individuals, of families, communities, country. We're seeing record levels of mental illness, record levels of addiction, mm -hmm. of incarceration, uh, suicide, family separations. Many leaders in HR are seeing this mm. because these are also individuals who are employees. So this avalanche of desperation is also becoming part of the expanded responsibility of HR leaders. How do I help address some of these societal ills? Mm -hmm. And certainly you're right, personally. But I described before, those are called deaths of despair. Mm -hmm. You know, people dying out of despair. Uh, this is terrible and it's not going to get better. Mm -hmm. I lost both my parents to deaths of despair. Mm -hmm. uh, and it subsequently put me on that same road that uh, fortunately so, I did not remain on largely because I had some drive, yes, but I also was met by, you know, some people who had such a major impact mm -hmm. on my life. And I, I actually have come to call them human lighthouses because that's very much what they were. Sure. The challenge of the public realm to me, and I experienced this firsthand as a candidate, uh, you and I woke up today and said, what am I going to do today? What am I going to solve today? What I encountered far too much in this generation of public servant anyway, not all, not all, but far too many of them don't wake up that way. They don't wake up the way most Americans do. They wake up trying to figure out who and what they can stop. Hmm. It's a very different ethos mm. and a very, very different approach to the world. Hmm. Um, and if at the end of your day you're saying, well, I stopped that, wow. That is not a pillow I want to put 
my head on at mm -hmm. the end of the day. I want to know that something I did advanced humanity, created some goodness mm -hmm. in the world, mm -hmm. that somebody's life is actually better because of what I've done. My wrestle is whether or not public service is the most effective way to do that. Because the culture, David, the culture is so misaligned with how the rest of us live. Like we don't understand. We don't understand why there are weapons of war on American streets. We don't get that. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. you, can, you can both protect our liberties and have a universe where children aren't diving under desks. Like, that's not acceptable in America. Mm -hmm. We benefited from leaders in the past who always knew when to correct. So when we had this income inequality before, that's what America did. We right. kind of self-corrected. What's different this time around is uh, that there is a, just a flat-out outward unapologetic resistance to course correcting. And it's aided and embedded by racism, uh, bigotry, othering, which never improves humanity. There's no society that we can look at today or historically and say that society became better because they were putting somebody in the category right. of other. Right. So it's not sustainable. Right. And we have these very stubborn things called the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, Constitution. Uh, that have served America well. So we're going to have to take some stance, I, I think, uh, uh, and decide what kind of nation do we want to be. It sounds like we haven't heard the last from Steve on, <laughs> on, on these issues. That's exciting. As an avid reader, what's a book that changed your life? It was definitely Watership Down, a great classic by Richard Adams. I think of. you read that as a child, right? I, I did. Yeah, that was, I did. Was that given to you by your neighbor, that It book? was. Mrs. Uh, Levin. Levin, yeah. The book itself was very much a lighthouse, you know, for me. The reason I gravitated to it so much was because it was about a group of rabbits who all of a sudden have found them yanked away from home. And they go off on this mission to just find home, and the world is full of danger and difficulty. Mm -hmm. They're small, they're defenseless, often overlooked, forgotten. Um, and he said something that for me became much as much of a life's philosophy he said they they stand and they fight because it's safer than running hmm. it's safer than running i who probably have that natural tendency anyway to push through persevere you know reading something like that just affirmed it for me so i didn't feel like it was an aberration or that i was an anomaly fortunately i'm not i don't have to fight that way anymore but i take on different fights that are much more about others mm -hmm. because I do find others who are fighting those same kind of fights today people living lives much like my mother and father did my, that my siblings are uh, some of them not all and so that's the question in front of us now so what do we do not about our own suffering but about somebody else's suffering right. I find a lot of those answers to be in the people alongside of us heroes aren't always above us the people you see uh, on your social media timelines and massive followings and big titles and connections to power. Uh, I think the real heroes are, are the people like Claire Levin who brought me books. Right. Ruby Dot, the director of the Upper Bound program. John Sykes, a teacher who took me in when mm -hmm. I was just 16. Right. They're very much like the lighthouse. When you think about the lighthouse, the lighthouse is the tallest structure in the sea. Rarely will you see a name on a lighthouse. It doesn't need that recognition. It doesn't need to tell you what it is. As soon as you see it, you know what it is. Mm. It doesn't judge your circumstance. It doesn't care about your label. It doesn't care if you're black, white, voter Republican or Democrat, gay or straight, 
uh, differently able, Lighthouse never cares. Sees you in difficulty and then says, here's my light, follow that and you'll be in a new place and in a safe harbor. Mm -hmm. The most powerful lighthouses in the world are the human ones. I had them, you had them too. Sure. We all can be that. Right. Well, I think this is a good moment to end our podcast on that note. So thank you so much. Thanks. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.